Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, September 14th. Today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about Semaphore, the media company with grand ambitions to serve millions of news consumers worldwide is finally starting to come out of the bunker. Dylan is here to discuss who they've hired, who they haven't, and what exactly this buzzy news organization is supposed to be. And later on, Matt Bellany joins us to discuss all things Emmys. We'll hear about all that and more in today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Dylan Byers, who's going to talk to us today about something that's a preoccupation of people who work in the media, although the public at large probably doesn't know anything about this, but it's called Semaphore. Uh, We've talked about it on the pod before. We've written about it. This is a project launched by Ben Smith, formerly of BuzzFeed, Politico, New York Times, New York Observer, and Justin Smith of Bloomberg. And Dylan, you wrote in this piece you have up about them uh, this week, about how they started talking about this and started raising money for it with a kind of huge ambition. Like they're going to be, you know, serving a market of 200 million English speaking (laughs) global citizens who aren't being served by the news media. It really feels like, and you write this, that, that Semaphore, when it first came out, was met with some eye rolling by some media people, even though Ben and Justin are super talented. And also the pie in the sky rhetoric ran up against the reality of, it was much harder to hire reporters to, to get this brand off the ground, not that it's launched yet, but have they overcome that in those initial sort of speed bumps? It certainly sounds like it a little bit. The way that Ben and Justin launched was such that they came straight out of the gate effectively saying, we are going to war with the biggest news organizations in the world. I think on the one hand, there was this sense among people in the industry that like, look, when you couple Justin Smith's Rolodex and all of the connections that he has globally, and you put that with Ben Smith's reputation and his sort of savvy, both as a journalist and as a newsroom leader, he obviously had that experience at BuzzFeed news during that during BuzzFeed's heyday. This is something that you probably shouldn't bet against because these are two very accomplished, smart, successful guys. But the problem with launching with such sort of over-the-top rhetoric about what you're trying to do while simultaneously giving the impression that you are going to put together the Mount Rushmore of political and business journalists, and then everyone's sort of learning that you're going after the Maggie Habermans, the Andrew Ross Sorkins, the Jonathan Swans. The problem with that is that invariably you you are going to come to the point when you did not achieve that. Oh, and by the way, you, you say we're launching this sort of global news organization that's going to have bureaus in all of these different regions and countries. And these regions are going to, you know, we're, we're going to reinvent how news is made and consumed. And then when you actually get to launch date, what you actually really have is you basically have a largely DC-focused newsroom coupled with an Africa beat that's run by one guy who splits his time between Lagos and New York. Then everyone's like, okay, you didn't hire the people you said you're going to hire. Instead, you hired folks who are sort of, some of them are very talented. Some of them might be even more talented under Ben's leadership, but you you didn't get the Mount Rushmore of journalists. You're actually not launching in 
regions around the world, really. You're actually, at the end of the day, what you're doing is you're building a news business on the back of a sort of newsletter model, which plenty of folks, including Puck, have done that. And then on top of that, you're sort of playing in a sandbox that is heavily occupied by all of the various DC publications that we already know about. So I think everyone wishes the Smiths the best. I think it's good for the industry generally and certainly good for startups such as our own if Semaphore succeeds. But it is impossible if you've been paying attention to their story not to notice the delta between what was promised and what is at least initially being delivered. And I think that raises a lot of questions about how great this thing can actually be and whether or not it can take on institutions like the New York Times or Bloomberg or CNN. By the way, to name name some of these hires, they made an approach at Maggie, approached Swan, Andrew Ross Sorkin. They have hired Dave Weigel from the Washington Post, which is a big hire. And by the way, I should mention Dave's specialty and increasingly one of few reporters still doing this covers politics from outside the Beltway and is constantly on the road. So that I, I don't want to like lump him in totally with like DC coverage, but it's politics. Maxwell Tanney, Benji Sarlin, really good reporters. Yeah, fine people. I'm anxious to see who they hire in London and who they hire in New York and who they hire in San Francisco and who they hire in Tokyo, like if that's where they're going. Right. You want to believe that if Justin Smith is is leaving his job as the head of Bloomberg Media and Ben Smith is leaving his job as the sort of very celebrated and accomplished New York Times media columnist, and they make these promises about sort of reinventing the wheel, you want that to happen. And then the Steve Clemens newsletter, for instance, it is yet another DC newsletter trying to replace Playbook as the sort of Beltway Bible. But what it's really doing is it's doing what, what the reason there are so many DC publications is because there's a lot of money in DC. There are a lot of people who are willing to advertise there because uh, it's an influential set of people they're reaching. And so they're launching this newsletter to make that money. And it's like, okay, great. And and maybe, although, you know, I, I don't know if Steve Clemens sort of has the metabolism. I think he has the metabolism to host like, like six great cocktail parties a night. I don't know if he has the metabolism to write a newsletter every single day of the week. Whatever. I hope it succeeds. It would be great if something could basically take Playbook's place. But it's not It's not a reinvention of the wheel. It's nothing new. And, and the ambitions just feel significantly diminished and modest, again, compared to what I think we all thought we were getting. They've also been doing something kind of interesting. Um, if you follow them on Twitter, Semaphore, if you don't know how to spell it, S-E-M-A-F-O-R, published a scoop, even though they don't really exist yet. And they, they have a tech reporter, Reed Albergati, who reported that the Biden administration was looking at signing an executive order that would directly target TikTok by limiting how Chinese companies collect U.S. data. Big news, but it, it didn't pop uh, in the way that a, a scoop about the Biden administration <laughs> giving an executive order on TikTok might if it came from like another larger news organization, which I think signals just some skepticism on the part of the rest of the media, even though Ben and, and Justin are great and the reporters are great, that like, we're not sure how to treat this yet. How do we source this? I don't know. I, I was just interested in how that story had a ceiling in terms of like how viral it went. And if it came from another news organization, I think it would have gotten some more attention. I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, I even think, and I think we've seen it here at Puck, you know, our, our colleagues get scoops all the time that, you know, more, more the sort of more established news brands sort of don't don't know what to do, whether or not they should credit us or it, if they should even bother. Well, then they write their own stories. And this has happened to you. And this has happened with Teddy. And this has happened with Matt. And this has happened with Tara. And this has happened with Tina. And this has happened with Julia. <laughs> and it's happened with everyone on our staff where we break some news. And then the Washington Post will like write their own version and like not credit yes, us. Right. Or be like, it's a 
newsletter called Puck News that originally broke this, and I'll only add it on right. after we point it out on Twitter. Anyway. Look, I think by virtue of it being Ben and Justin, I think people are going to take Semaphore more seriously out of the gate. But for all the talk about reinventing how people consume news or how new, you know, or, or, or the influencer model or anything, at the end of the, th- those things are real and, and progress is great. Um, but at the end of the day, news organizations sort of live or die based off of whether or not you've got real scoops and real smart analysis and you really know how to own the story and are sort of offering something that no one else can offer. And I think the best thing that Semaphore has going for it is Ben, because Ben is has historically been a scoop machine and he has shown, like at BuzzFeed, that he can help great reporters or fledgling reporters become great and become scoop machines in their own right. So again, even now at this point, as much as Semaphore is starting to look like just another news organization, I'm, I'm not betting against them. I have I still have a lot of faith in those guys. One thing I want to ask you, though, is like, are they, look, there's a problem in political media and probably media media where everyone has a very short attention span and people want results really quickly. Joe Biden was the greatest president in history until he wasn't. And then yeah. he was dead. And then now he might be coming back. It's just like yeah. people get whiplash from following the expectations of the press. <laughs> yes, totally. And so Semaphore has sort of said that this is a 10-year project, yes. a 10-year ramp. And like, it's going to take a long time to build something this ambitious. And so we might be like skeptical now, but it's 2022 and maybe by 2032, like they've built this huge global enterprise and, and therefore like the impatience of their critics is getting in the way of thinking about the long-term plans here. I, I think that's totally fair. And I think that, you know, Justin has said from very early on to me to, in an interview with me, it's sequential and it's iterative and and that they were never going to get to launch day with bureaus in every single country around the world. Yes, I agree with that. And yes, I think they have a significant amount of runway. I think the issue here is that my understanding, based off of folks I've spoken to, is that even they sort of privately recognize that they didn't get the people they were hoping to get and that they ended up having to be iterative pre-launch, I don't think they anticipated going to launch with quite such a small team, not as many big names, not really launching anywhere outside of the United States with the exception of this this one guy on the Africa beat. I think some harsh reality set in between the day that they announced what they were doing and they quit their respective jobs and then launch day, which is coming up here probably in October. All right, Dylan. Thank you as always for your insight. We'll see you soon. All right. Thank you, Peter. When we come back, Matt Bellany is here to tell us his thoughts about the Emmys. Welcome back, everybody. This is Alex Bigler. I absolutely pleaded with Ben Landy to give up the microphone today and let me be the one to speak with Matt Bellany about all things Emmys. That, By the way, that is a total lie. Ben just didn't watch the show, right? <laughs> he, no, I don't know if he watched it. That doesn't matter. The two things can be true at the exact same it's time. It's okay. Most people, most people did not watch the show, and I... Don't blame them. There was not that much interesting to watch if you were not an insider in Hollywood. Uh, it was a lot of, you know, the same shows getting up there and congratulating themselves again. The top three category winners 
were the shows everybody thought would win. Ted Lasso in comedy, White Lotus for limited, and Succession for drama. There were some nice speeches, but like overall, did you as a viewer enjoy watching the Emmys? Okay, fine. First of all, you got me. The only reason I was watching was because I was trying to see if I could see you in the audience. And second of all, I think I slacked you. Is it as boring in the room as it is watching on TV? I actually think it's more boring because they do many things just for television. The Emmys is particularly boring and I didn't have a particularly good seat this year. So I was not you know, mingling with people in the table area which is actually fun if, you know, you go to shows like the Golden Globes or one of the others where you can actually like mingle with people. That is actually more fun. But uh, this was just kind of a slog. What was the vibe in your aisle? Who were you sitting with? Any, any notable quotables? Honestly, I was with other journalists and what seemed to be dozens of people from Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. <laughs> But you made a point that they were like actually pretty raucous and it could be a fun show if you had them closer to the front. Totally. Yeah, that I mean, that's the whole thing that's crazy is that they actually love to be there. Most of the industry people are just jaded. They've done this show dozens of times and they, you know, you know they clap and they get excited about certain things, but mostly just the shows that they, they work for. But the late night writers were like going nuts and whooping it up. And yeah, they're in the rafters. Well, last week tonight, writers team, this is your notice that we will party with you anytime, anytime you want. All right, well, let's get into brass taxes. So HBO and HBO Max won 38 Emmys, if I'm counting that correctly, which is more than double what they've won in 2021. That's true. And if you count the parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, then you add even more on top of that because Warner Brothers produces Abbott Elementary and Ted Lasso. So the total for Warner Brothers Discovery is 48, which just like blows everyone away. So Apple and Netflix won some Emmys. They did not win probably as many as they would have hoped for. Is it a victory or is it a crushing defeat? Well, Netflix is interesting because if you watch the Emmys, the Netflix narrative was not great. I mean, they were up for a ton of awards and they only got three on the show. They had two for Squid Game which is a big breakthrough. That's the first foreign language show to ever win Emmy. So that's a huge plus. And then they got Julia Garner for Ozark. But the Emmys are given in two tranches. They're given at the primetime show, and then they're given at the Creative Arts Awards, which takes place a week before. And Netflix actually did pretty well at the Creative Arts Awards, won 23 honors. So the total for Netflix is 26 Emmys, which is not nearly what HBO did, but it's definitely respectable. I mean, Netflix is certainly a player in the Emmys and they should be. They make as much or more content as anyone else out there. So I, I don't, I'm not going to call Netflix a loser here. Same with Amazon. Amazon did not get the wins last night, um, but they won some of the creative arts. Hulu had about eight total Emmys, which is you know not what they had hoped. They had hoped to get more, especially for Only Murders in the Building. And they uh, wanted Dope Sick to win in the limited series category. But they got Michael Keaton. They got uh, Amanda Seyfried, win, won for The Dropout. So they got some big, big wins. And overall, they got six at Creative Arts, so eight total. Um, and the same with, same with Apple. I don't think Apple is a disappointment here. Ted Lasso winning is a big win for them. They got four on the show, and then they only got three at the Creative Arts Awards. But it's seven total. 
And for Apple, you know, keep in mind, they haven't been competing in the Emmys for more than a few years. It's what is this, the third year that they're even eligible? So for Apple to be in that conversation, I think is still a win. So did anything about last night surprise you in any way? I think only murders getting shut out on the show is is a surprise for me. Um, I, I was surprised that Matthew McFadden won for succession. I think most people thought that Kieran Culkin was going to win in that category. Uh, it's a little bit of a showier performance, but I love Tom on Succession, so I was not upset. Someone pointed out to me that this was basically the arc of his character, Tom, in Succession, the sneaky win amongst amongst everybody. I know. Maybe he like maybe there's some shenanigans going on. He was gaming the <laughs> Emmy voters or broke into the tallying company. I or love that. Like that. I love that narrative for him. Uh, but yeah, no, but that's that's a great win. I think Zendaya winning again. I mean, she's now the youngest person to win two Emmys, which is a big feat in the lead actor category. So I think there were some great narratives and great stories last night. It was just kind of like a paint by numbers Emmy ceremony. There was no big controversy or something that we're going to be talking about more than a couple of days after the show. Does the Academy consider that a problem? Like I'm a lay person when it comes to those things. Well, we'll see on the ratings. As of this taping, we do not know the ratings. The preliminaries were not great, but the show got a little bit of a spike last year after a record low in 2020 during that pandemic show. So um, we'll see. There was up; they were up against the big football game last night. So we'll see. I, I'm betting the Emmy ratings will be down. Though Monday Night Football did not have a Keenan and Kel reunion, which was a highlight for me. Or breakdancing classic comedy characters like they opened the show with. You know, weirdly, they had Oprah there. Why not open the show with right. Oprah? That's the crazy thing about the Emmys. And a lot of these award shows is like there's so many creative people in this business. And yet these shows just kind of trudge along and they just feel so uninspired. Someone is going to figure out how to reinvent award shows for the modern era. And that person is going to get, be very, very rich. If you could change one thing about the Emmys and the award show, like wave your magic wand, what would be a, a fix you would make? I would love to have seen Martin Short win an Emmy because I think he would have given a fantastic speech. He's one of the funniest people in the world. And I think that would have been a nice career topper for him. You know, I'm not a big Ted Lasso fan. So I would have loved to see the series comedy award going to Abbott Elementary or Only Murders in the Building, which I think are two shows that are actually funny. And it would have been a nice endorsement for broadcast comedy to give Abbott Elementary an Emmy, um, which is kind of a dying breed. But those are nitpicks. I mean, overall, I like the shows that won last night. I thought White Lotus is hilarious and brilliant. So I was glad to see that. Well, I think the the one other thing you and I were talking about before we hit record is uh, like, I get we're trying to make some of these shows faster. Like I get that we're trying to make baseball games faster, but it was so cringy how they were playing people off of that stage last night. It was horrible. Especially Jennifer Coolidge from White Lotus. I wanted to see what crazy things she was going to say. She was going to do something fantastic. Let her do it. I know it's 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 just a fundamental misunderstanding of why people watch these shows. You watch for the emotional moments. I mean, that moment where Shirley Ralph started singing impromptu, that was a great moment. Or when Lizzo started crying and talking about how this is, you know, she wanted to see people like her on stage. Like those are the big emotional moments that cause people to tune in to these shows. And then you start cutting people off like you know, there are other w ways to cut if you got to bring this show in under three hours 
cut the montages, cut that ridiculous Kia ad, cut some <laughs> of the stuff that just went on and on. It's like, show us the stars being emotional. That's yeah. what we want. I guarantee if you had given Jennifer Coolidge 30 more seconds, she would have done something that would have had us talking about the Emmys for the next three months. Big missed opportunity. I agree. Okay, last question for you. Um, what do you think are going to be the shows to look for for next year's Emmys? I know you do um, the call sheet on The Town, which is your your show with The Ringer on Spotify, but I'm curious. Like, what should I be tuning into? What do you think is going to win big next year? I mean, well, the thing with the Emmys that's that's kind of annoying is that they repeat a lot. So, like, there will be a new season of Succession in the spring, and that will probably get nominated. Ted Lasso will be back. That will be nominated. There is now another season of White Lotus coming, which... Um, that show was a limited series, but now that they're doing another one, I guess actually they could probably, they, it's limited series or anthology and they're turning over the cast. Only Jennifer Coolidge is coming back. So I guess they could still be in limited. So I think those will all be nominated again. Of the new shows, I, I am betting that The Bear, the, uh, the comedy on FX with um, Jeremy Allen White, I bet that will be nominated in comedy next year. I could see the FX show uh, The Old Man with Jeff Bridges. I could see him and that show getting nominated. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's a, it's weird because it came out in the summer and it was not eligible for this year's Emmys. It will be eligible next year, but we'll see if the voters remember it. Okay, Matt. Well, thank you so much for, for talking with me and not Ben Landy. And thank <laughs> you for doing the Twitter takeover last night. I love when you do them. Um, I really feel like I'm there. This one was slightly less interesting than the Oscars, mostly because nobody punched anybody else on stage. So I thought a couple of people may come close to of punching Jimmy Kimmel after his uh, sketch on the stage. But yeah, um, I wanted to punch myself. <laughs> uh, well, I hope these award shows keep coming just so I can give you the puck Twitter handle and, and have you do more of these. No problem. Thanks, Matt. Bye bye. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.